Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Robert Cottrell, editor of thebrowser.com. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Eric, it's very kind. I've been a fan of your work since the early days of Product Hunt, and I'm really thrilled to be here and talking with you. Uh, likewise, I've been uh, re- uh, reading the browser uh, perhaps for, for a decade, and uh, for, for for those of you who don't know, Robert is perhaps uh, the best read person on the planet, uh, looks through, is it about a thousand uh, pieces a day to see which ones uh, make uh, make the browser? That That's what I reckon. I figure that it's maybe a bit of a reach to declare myself the best read person on the planet, but I think I'm I'm certainly the most read person on the internet, or alternatively, I'd be delighted to hear from anybody who reckons that, uh, <laughs> They can beat me on that. Now, I, I look at a thousand pieces a day, which uh, takes you well into the millions because, you know, we've been doing the browser now for 10 years. L- let's get into it. What makes the browser the browser? How do you define the browser? What makes a browser article appropriate for the browser? And, and what are you trying to achieve with the browser? Well, I what, what makes a, an article right for the browser is fairly easy to explain. What I'm looking for is writing of lasting value. So first of all, I wanted to be a really great piece so that if you were sitting across from me in a restaurant or at work, you know, I'd be putting my hand on your shoulder and saying, you really must read this. This is the thing you must read. Uh, But also, I think the test is, is it still going to be worth reading in three or six or 12 months time? Is it original? Is it in its way, definitive, does it give you a real kind of rush with the style or the handling or the argument when you read it? And the pieces that check all those boxes are relatively rare. They really stand apart. And what's the mission of the browser? What are you you trying to achieve? What do you hope it becomes? And and what's the origin behind it? We started off, I, I mean, it started off when I was still working for the Economist, and uh, I was running the editorial side of Economist.com in the mid 2000s when uh, we were still kind of adjusting to uh, Web 2.0 and introducing original content and differentiating the website from just uh, an online version of the print paper. And I really enjoyed very much working in that area. And so I kind of thought to myself, uh, this would be a good time to spin off and you know, see what would be an interesting, good, new, small thing to do. Because, you know, it was uh, me and my friend Al Breach and you know, we wanted to do something. And we talked around, we talked to a lot of our friends in journalism. And the argument that came back most forcefully was, you know, Already in you know, 2006, 2007, people were saying, you know, there's just too much stuff. You know, we, we know that there's, there are wonderful things there, but how do we find them? The, you know, the signal to noise ratio is getting worse and worse with every passing month. So you know, the really useful function would not be to originate more content, but 
to help people to navigate the content that's there and identify the content of real and lasting value. So that's what we got into as a philosophy. And since then, it's been a case of finding the business model to support it. And and where would you, and we'll get into business models later, but where would you fit the browser with other sort of online, you know, like fit relative to things like The Economist or, or other sort of online magazines or aggregators? Like where, where does it fit in within the ecosystem? Well, the, I mean, the term for what we do is now is kind of bedded down as curation, but that doesn't feel quite right to me, partly because, you know, I'm old fashioned enough to think of, as a curator of somebody who does scholarly work in a museum. I, I, I kind of feel that I'm doing something which is much closer to criticism in the artistic sense. So if you're a, a theatre critic, you're going out to a lot of plays and you're trying to tell people what, you know, what the special quality is of this particular play and uh, you know, why you should go and see it. And that's very much the function I see myself fulfilling. I see the browser as fulfilling with journalism with writing we're trying to be constructive critics drawing people's attention to what's really good and to some degree explaining why we feel that way you you were at the economist i mean you've been in media and and journals for for quite some time and you've seen sort of the evolution of of business model and and technology and how that's affected it why don't you give sort of a brief survey of how you've seen the last decade sort of media and journalism evolve? I've, I felt very sad about the evolution of online journalism because I feel that, it, that there were two fundamental errors, related errors, maybe even the same error, uh, you know, one of which was to pursue an advertising-driven business model and an awful lot of capital got burned just trying to you know flip the editorial model over and over again to try and make the advertising maths work and the second fundamental error i think was the illusion that when you're online the marginal costs of publishing extra stuff is tiny so you might as well publish an enormous quantity of stuff. Now, if you're in the business of trying to maximize your eyeballs, then there's something to be said for that sort of quantity-driven model. But even if you're a really great publication, uh, if you suddenly multiply by five or ten the amount of stuff that you're publishing, then you're going to drown what you do really well in a whole lot of mediocre Me Too stuff. And I feel that with a very few exceptions, online journalism has been through that sort of very, very dark and difficult valley. It's not out of it yet, but I think maybe it's kind of bottoming out because at least uh, I think nobody believes in the advertising-driven model anymore and they're trying to make the subscription-driven model work. Um, I think that's also structurally very flawed, but, uh, you know, we can, we, we, we can talk about that later on. So, but I think that those are the fundamental problems in the business models of online journalism. They have grievously impacted on the editorial models by essentially obliging the 
editors to chase volume. But I'm, you know, I'm happy to to say and to believe that you know within all of this turmoil and within all of this economic hardship, there is still a lot of great writing being done and it may be more great writing than ever because it's so much easier now for people whether they're inside or outside mainstream journalism to write and to find an audience so again you know i hope that the browser is doing something useful in that respect it's helping to connect people who are writing well with a wider audience than they might find simply by their own word of mouth. Let's get into some of the business model stuff. You mentioned that uh, you think subscription might be misguided in some way. Why is that? I really respect the, the desire and the right of publishers to and writers to monetize their content, to raise revenues. Good journalism costs money good writers deserve to be rewarded. My problem with the paywall model is that it relies almost universally on subscriptions and typically rolling or 12-month subscriptions. And, you know, I think for the average person, there just isn't that much room for a whole lot of subscriptions in your life. I mean, you might want one or two subscriptions at 60 or or $100 a year for an excellent publication. But, you know, you don't want 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 subscriptions. So if you've got a whole bunch of publications trying to sell themselves to you on a subscription basis, then, you know, you've got a, you've got a fallacy of composition. It might be okay for any one of them, uh, but it can't possibly work for the whole bunch. My sense is that what a reader wants is not a subscription, but a given piece. So for some reason, you know, you've stumbled across a given piece, you've heard about a piece, it's been shared with you, there's a lot in it that you like, you want that piece right now. And the subscription model doesn't deliver that. I mean, the publishers who've built subscription paywalls they don't want to sell individual pieces because they rightly foresee that if they start to sell individual pieces, then the daylight is going to come flooding in. It's going to be very clear which writers are the ones that are pulling the readers that the readers are pursuing and all of the cross-subsidies, all of the bundling that goes into conventional publications is going to collapse. So, I mean, the the logical argument there to me is so strong that I kind of feel that that development is inevitable, but you know, I've been looking out for it for years now and it's, uh, you know, it's still not happening. Yeah, it is interesting. We haven't seen sort of like in music, you have sort of the idea of a single and people pay for singles, but that hasn't taken place in, in journalism the same way it seems. It, that, that, that's right. I mean, it, I suppose it's really a question of what's the, you know, the minimum viable unit and, uh, because we, you know, in the days of a print paper or a print magazine, obviously it was the magazine or the paper. But even then, you know, if you walked into a shop and said, 
I want a copy of the Washington Post. They'd just sell you a copy of the Washington Post. They wouldn't say, sorry, sir, you've got to take out a year's subscription. Um, but online, you know, we've kind of you know, painted ourselves into the corner where to get a single copy, let alone a single article, you've got to sign up for something which is explicitly or which will de facto be uh, you know, a term subscription. And that, that seems to me to be fundamentally misguided. I am interested in the possibilities opened up by Apple's News Plus in the sense that they've got a whole bunch of paywalled publications, really good paywalled publications within their bundle. I'm going to guess, I don't know, that they can address all of the articles in all of those publications individually. So is it possible that that could unlock the sale of single articles uh, as an alternative to the sale of term subscriptions. I don't know, but it strikes me that there's a tiny step towards making that possible. Why couldn't a sort of a Netflix for for journalism work? You mentioned that it, the problem with subscriptions was that people don't want so many, but could you could you imagine one that or it was like cable TV bundle? You get you get you get everything. Um, it's easy to it's easy to imagine that, and I think to some extent that's what Apple News Plus is. I mean, it's very much an attempt to replicate that model. I fear it might run into the some kind of discovery problem. You know, the the tyranny of choice that uh, you, know, you think in theory that it would be really wonderful to have a whole bunch of things to read, but then when you're suddenly looking at a list of a hundred things to read, and I certainly feel that way when I look at my Netflix home screen, uh, you know, I end up just browsing forever and then not watching anything. Um, we don't have Apple News Plus yet in Britain, and I'm speaking to you now from London, so I haven't had a chance to sample you know, the actual psychological model myself, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, very impatient to do so. But if you'll forgive me taking this line of thinking just a little bit further, I think that not only do readers want individual articles rather than term subscriptions, I believe, and I've got some evidence for this, that readers want to bond with writers and not so much with publications. So let's say I really want to read stuff by Susan Orlean. Well, uh, that's my first order requirement. I actually don't much mind whether Susan Orlean is publishing in The New Yorker or Harper's or The New York Times magazine or The Financial Times. I'm confident that it will be Susan Orlean, and that's what I want. And if you couple up that sort of psychological perception, if it's well-founded, with the economics of paying writers directly, I think you get a much more attractive model. So if I could follow Susan Orlean, and if thousands of other people could follow Susan Orlean, and if we could all pay her a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars for a piece that she publishes, then she as a writer is going to clear somewhere between five thousand and a hundred thousand dollars for a long piece, which A is fantastically more, at least at the high end, than 
any publication would pay, and B, she has total control over the content and the rights. So I don't know how big an economy like that could be. I mean, let's imagine as an order of magnitude that there might be 10,000 writers in the world who can command a following of between ten and 100,000 people of whom a significant number would be happy to pay $1 to $5 for a piece. Now, even if all of those boxes are checked at the maximum level, you know, that's still not going to be the kind of unicorn-level, uber $50 billion corporation. But you know, it's going to be a fantastically good platform with serious numbers and a huge amount of satisfaction and stimulus on both sides for writers and for readers. There was a time when I hoped that Medium would go in that direction, and in my small way, I did my best to lobby them to do so. They didn't. Um, instead, they, when they made their pivot towards monetization, they set about trying to import existing medium-sized publications, promising them a bespoke paywall. I think it would have been much more exciting if they'd retooled the platform to attract individual writers to sell their content directly. And I sense you know, something of the same possibility latent in what Substack is doing. I mean, I, Substack is the publishing platform for the browser. We love them dearly. We are thrilled to bits that uh, they've got, I think it was $15 million in venture capital financing from Anderson Horowitz alone or leading a syndicate. But to make those numbers work, I think they've you know, they're going to have to scale their that is going to have to scale their operations, and I think it would be really great if they could build out a market for writers to sell original content directly to readers. Totally. So, a few things. One is we mentioned that relationships will be with the author or with the the writer. Of course, you were at the Economist, which doesn't have any bylines. Do you? So, do you think what happens to, if the power goes with the you know ten thousand or so journalists? What happens to these publications? Or do they become commodities? Or what, what happens to The Economist? What happens to, I don't know, New Republic, New York Times, Washington Post? Well, you certainly have a big shift in market power towards the writers if the writers can go off to another platform, publish themselves directly, and make good or better money. So there's no way around that. Publications believe that they exist because their brand is stronger than any of their individual writers. And as you as you as you point out, The Economist is a limit case of that because their writers are anonymous. It's all about The Economist. And I can testify from my time on The Economist that that is a really effective and powerful model in this case, which may be a unique case. I mean, I was a staff writer for The Economist for the best part of 15 years. And I really got used to these occasions where I'd show up to interview somebody of great power or wealth who was accustomed to reading and revering The Economist and they'd, sort of, they'd look at me, you know, me, this kind of shabby 
individual uh, who's kind of humming and hawing and scribbling away in notes and you know they'd say out loud or they'd think quietly you know you you're the economist so it was that kind of much more effective for them i think for the economist to project the institution rather than the individual writer but i think that doesn't hold true for almost any other and perhaps not for any other publication i mean no other publication is at least outside the centrally planned economies is quite so well i think the economy uh, is quite so coherent so monolithic in its thought and its style other other papers tend to uh, put a premium on individual voices within their writing and not all of those voices are equally good you know for me there are good writers on any publication and there are some mediocre writers too and it, there are subjects that i'm interested in in the newspaper and there are subjects that i'm not interested in in the newspaper you know let's take the financial times if what i'm really interested in is the shipping news then the presence of all this stuff about european politics actually subtracts value from the paper it makes it more difficult for me to find what i want so i think at best you're going to have a big sort of unbundling of existing papers because if you start to sell articles individually or write to start marketing themselves then you're very quickly going to see what the premium stuff is what the marketable stuff is and what's the baggage so footprints will shrink some stuff will unbundle and perhaps be sold more efficiently elsewhere and a lot of publications will be really grievously hurt and may disappear because in fact they aren't bringing anything really valuable to the writers who work for them except their existing infrastructure so you know i really love the new yorker when i look at the new yorker i see one of the world's great bargains because you know it's got 30 pieces in it for which i or you know a good number of other readers would happily pay you know $5 $10 per piece you know, a good piece by Susan Orlean John McPhee Malcolm Gladwell of course i'm going to pay $5 or $10 for that it's going to be really excellent um so if if i can have all of these 30 articles for whatever the newsstand price is now you know, $8 $10 $10 they're giving it away if you unbundle that and sell the pieces individually then you know the returns to the writers and the returns to the readers are going to be much much higher and what's also excellent about the new yorker almost uniquely is that if there is a piece in there which seems to me to be completely unpromising i'm not interested in the subject i don't know the writer maybe it doesn't even start very well nonetheless I will go on reading because I will trust the New Yorker. I will say, well, if they're publishing it, then you know I'm going to discover something good here. And apart from the New Yorker, I would find it very, very difficult to think of another publication that I would place quite so confidently in that class. Is it fair to say that the New Yorker and, and publications like it, or were even able to get off the ground, or 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 sort of give this sort of? Uh, you know steal it as you call it because they were funded via sort of philanthropy money or it may be in a similar way or, or slightly different than Substack is able to create these services because they're funded via venture capital 
Yeah, I mean, you, you will know much more than me about the modelling of venture capital. But as I understand it, it's uh, venture capital is happy to place bets at very long odds on a range of enterprises in the hope that a small number of them will scale and pay off massively. So with Substack, let's hope that is the outcome. But I'd be very interested to see how the business adjusts to make that outcome possible. Now, but in terms of the New Yorker, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the New Yorker's profit and loss looks like right now. It's an expensive thing to run. It's diversified so far into events that maybe uh, what we think of as the magazine is not such a large part of the overall business now. But you, know, you only have to go back 30 years to a time when there was effectively no constraint on the editorial budget of the New Yorker because companies were queuing up, you know, kind of literally queuing up to put full-page adver- advertisements into the New Yorker. And it was the editor's call, it was Sean's call as to how much advertising they would accept. So, you know, Sean never had to think about the budget when he decided that uh, he should send a, a correspondent to the other other side of the world to, uh, you know, report for six months on an esoteric subject. You know, to some extent, the New Yorker uh, has got a huge amount of cultural and possibly financial capital on which uh, it's been able to live. But for new publications starting up now and primarily online, you're absolutely right. The most successful models editorially are philanthropic or, let's say, you know, not essentially for profit, you know, maybe foundational. So, you know, I really admire the new generation of online science publications. You've got Quanta, you've got Mosaic, you've got Nautilus, uh, more or less in the same space, you've got Eon, and, and all of those publications are either entirely funded by philanthropic foundations or their writing is supported through partnerships with scientific bodies. And then in let's say what we're going to call the public service journalism. I hugely admire the Marshall Project. ProPublica is a gold standard. Both of those are, the first is a private philanthropic project. The second is foundation supported. You've got London Review of Books, Foreign Affairs. Uh, The first is supported by a very wealthy long-term backer and the second is an offshoot of a foundation. So, you know, that's where I feel there's a lot of good writing. It's hard to think of anywhere, any publication, with the exception of The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books, which is producing absolutely first-class long-form journalism these days on a profit-driven model. And and do you think... Long form journalism, uh, that, that the quality kind, you know, investigative reporting, will that um, increase or decrease in the next ten years? I think it's going to continue um, at its current very, very high level because people are driven to write it. Uh, I think the question is rather, uh, will the rewards to the writers increase? Uh, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I don't know 
I guess you've got people writing really superb long form pieces for a few hundred dollars, maybe a few thousand dollars, maybe nothing at all. I mean, I, I kind of fear that journalism, long form journalism is the most undervalued art form or high craft form in the world today. You know, if you're a visual artist, if you're a, you know, a painter uh, and you're at the top of your game, then you know, the painting you produce in a day is going to sell for you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. If you're a long form writer at the top of your game, you're going to work for a month on a piece and you know, you're lucky if you get between one and five dollars a word, and that's going to come from you know, one of a handful of high-paying publications. So it seems that you know really good writers are driven to write even when they are not proportionately rewarded. But you know, I really do wish, uh, you know, for entirely humanitarian reasons, that uh, you know, they were properly rewarded. I'm curious how you think about you know on that note uh, how you think about sort of. Scale, I guess. You know, there's this quote: most books should be blog posts, most blog posts should be tweets. How do you think about sort of as we, you know, get into more of a you know Twitter-sized world where everything is condensed in two eighty characters? What's lost there, or, or what's gained? How should we think about length? I'm 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 pretty comfortable with things getting shorter because I have a I have a very short attention span. I think as a rule of thumb. Yeah, everything should last an hour, whether it's a film or a play or a, or a dinner party or a conversation. Yeah, an hour is a really good length of time. Uh, I, and the ideal length for a novel is 194 pages. And I think it's true that a lot of long-form journalism incorporates the essentials of a book. And I think that you know, the reason that we have such long books is – a surviving artifact of uh, you know the industrial production process that uh, you'd have an idea for a book one day you'd be able to express it perfectly in a thousand word proposal that you give to your agent and those thousand words would say what you wanted to say so powerfully that they would set in motion the whole machinery of producing the book and then you know, the book would not appear until two or three years later, by which time, who knows to what degree your original thesis has been overtaken. The only way that you can make your book stay there, earn its place on the bookshelf, is to turn it into something like a work of reference. So you take your thousand word idea, you report it out to what might otherwise be a 10,000 word idea, and then you bulk it out to 100,000 words because that's what a book is. Now, where we get long form journalism that captures in those five or 10,000 words, you know, the essential features of the book, which might be 10 times longer, I think that's really great. So you, you, know, you have long features in the London Review of Books, which in the New Yorker, which might exceptionally run to 10,000 words. Why are they magazine articles and not books? And the answer is because if you call it a magazine article, it comes out next week. If you call it a book, it comes out next year at best. I'm also very comfortable with the idea that people should just read as much as they want to read and know more. So conventionally in journalism, 
uh, you're expected to make the important point up top. You're supposed to say right up there in the first or second paragraph what it is that people are reading in this piece. And if that's true, then I do actually have quite a hard time explaining to myself why people should continue and read all the rest. So if you're the reader, you read, you start reading the piece, you've read the main point, you know, what's the point in reading all the rest? And the answer is that you know, the writer has to be a real master of the structure and of the voice to hold your attention through a long form piece, even after the essential point has, dis- has been disclosed. And uh, that is skill of a very high order. So I still, I, so I think generally speaking, most things benefit from you know, being shortened. You know, ev- to a journalist, everything in life looks as though it could do with a good edit. But I do put a firewall there between you know, stuff that runs for an hour and you know, stuff that runs for 140 characters. I think you can put the entire essence of a feature film into 60 minutes, as we learned with The Sopranos and as HBO demonstrates to us every night. Um, I don't think you can put anything more than uh, an epigram into 140 characters, but, you know, heck, even good epigrams are in short supply. There's this uh, book, I can't remember who wrote it, uh, How to Read a Book, I think it's called. How, to read. How, how do you, what advice can, uh, can people learn about how to read better from, from you who reads, you know, a thousand pieces a day? Obviously, you don't read them, you know, cover to cover. I, 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 I look at them and I stop reading as soon as it's clear that this is not a piece of, let's say, great originality and lasting value. I was saying earlier that I really regret the fact that even the best publications produce 10 times more than they should just because they think that uh, somehow that's going to be of economic benefit to them. So even though I subscribe only to publications that I know are capable of producing excellent writing, and I'm talking here about RSS subscriptions, nonetheless, I immediately rule out roughly 90% of what crops up in my RSS reader simply because it's reaction journalism. It's... uh, an editor has seen what the story is today and you either reproduce it or you produce a very slight variant on it or you produce a spurious update to it. So to say I look at a thousand pieces a day is no great shakes when you consider that uh, 800 don't hold your attention beyond the headline and for the remaining couple of hundred you're reading into the first paragraph. And again, this would be general advice that if a piece does not start well, then the chances are vanishingly small that it's going to improve later. So if you're faced with a really dud first paragraph, give it up. It's not worth your time to go deeper into it. And the exception there, I would say, is if you have a particular attachment to the writer and you know that the writer is going to deliver quality, then you're going to you're going to hang in there longer and see how it goes right or or what goes wrong. But um, there's just so much stuff you have to make good use of your time. So I think if you're not getting a very high return from whatever you're doing, and that's not only reading, stop doing it. You know, if you're not enjoying the play, leave at the interval. If the film seems to you to be a dud. Yeah, get out, do something else. And if the piece you're reading doesn't seem magical, stop right there and look for one that does. 
And uh, you, you, the browser is uniquely you. There is a world in which you could bring on, you know, volunteer or, or other editors. But I imagine you, you want the browser to be uniquely your voice, your algorithm. And then, of course, there are actual al- algorithms. Let, let's get into sort of you know, MLAI-based curation or even mm. you know, MLAI-based, you know, journalism. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the browser is uniquely me, with the exception of a couple of weeks a year when I take a break and uh, my colleague, the CEO of the browser, Uri Bram, takes over and we declare that because I feel a very personal pact with the readers that uh, yeah, I, I've, I, I feel that uh, you know, the browser is my sensibility and if it varies from that, I need to explain myself. That said, I'm very excited by the possibilities that are being created by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I've partnered up with a couple of computer scientists here in London to explore those. We've set up a little partnership called Gentle Reader. We've produced a reading app, um, which we put up free on the uh, on the iOS app store. And what I'm trying to do there as relates to the browser is to see how far I can train an instance of machine learning to have my sensibility so that I can then, I don't want to substitute the machine for myself, but I want to use the machine to go and read far more extensively, extensively than I can and to return suggestions for browser-type pieces that would otherwise have eluded me entirely. So what we've done to implement that is the browser's been going for 10 years. We've recommended upwards of 30,000 pieces. So we've just pointed the ML instance at all of those pieces. It's read them all. And the neural network has done whatever it does inside its black box. And it's come up with an an idea of quintessential browser-ness. So now the machine is reading from day to day the same feeds that I'm reading and it's learning faster now because it can see not only what I choose but also what I don't choose, which is uh, which is a much better set for, for developing its perceptions. And I would say we've reached the point now where uh, looking – if, if, if the machine also looks at the same thousand posts as I do, and if we set the confidence requirement pretty high, then the machine will return 50 suggestions. And of those, roughly half will be outliers. I've no idea what they're doing there. Roughly half will be a reasonable fit. I can see at a glance why the machine has chosen them. And two, maybe three, Will be slam dunks. They you know, they're absolutely browser, and they you know they. I have already decided they would go into the browser. I don't know whether that's in absolute terms a good result or not, but it strikes me as pretty amazing. And you know, I think once we get to a reliable you know, three finds, three really slam dunk finds each day, then I'll set it loose confidently on a much wider range of feeds so it can go out and read you know, 10 or 20,000 posts each day or more and see if it brings back to me 
you know, a lot of pieces that I would have missed, but which deserve consideration. So I guess that's really a kind of augmented curation, isn't it? It's not really a, a substitute. It's not really a machine curation, and it never should be. But it's a way in which uh, it can you know, extend my reach. And I imagine that that kind of model is probably generalizable to other use cases. And, and, and I'm curious as to why, if, if it can augment super well, why you need to be there, <laughs> or, or what would be the role for, for for you or the human in this instance if it's if it's you know being able to do that? Well, that's that's an interesting point, and it brings on to a, 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 a related area, which is you know what the browser really is. And I you know, I used to think that it was a website where I put up some links, but actually, almost all of our subscribers now opt into the email newsletter. It has a very high opening rate, over fifty percent but a relatively modest click-through rate. So the, you know, the modal use case is somebody who subscribes to the browser, takes the newsletter, opens it, and clicks through to maybe one piece. So in some sense, the newsletter has become the product. And the, I don't know if summary is the right word. I'm really trying to explain the piece to the reader, but that summary or abstract has become the value in the browser and for the time being a machine cannot do that as far as I know and I'd be thrilled to hear from any listeners who can tell me otherwise that whereas machine learning is totally brilliant at a ton of stuff it is not good at producing summaries in any sort of creative sense. The most it can do is tell you what words occur most frequently or you know, what sentences are up top. In fact, uh, you know, the sort of summary I will write for the browser will be very often to find what seems to me to be the interesting idea in the piece, pull that out, expose it, and give it a little bit of context of my own. So you know, at the moment, that's not uh, that's not that's not machine possible as far as I know. One thing we talked about, I'm curious to get your opinion on, is is fake news. It's something that has become popular with obviously the Trump election. What's been your you know thoughts on it? You know, being uh, on the front lines. I think it's fundamentally wrong to try and tackle fake news at the the article or the item level. I mean, if we imagine that. A lot of the problem is that you've got warehouses full of people flooding us with small pieces of rubbish. Then it seems to me to be a totally counterintuitive reaction to devote a huge amount of resources to analyzing that rubbish. I mean, it's better to ignore it altogether. I I may be kind of heavily influenced by the fact that I've been doing the browser for 10 years, but you've got a lot of consistency and quality in writers. You've got a lot of consistency and quality in publications. And I think if you try and address this issue at the publication level, then you're saying to yourself, which publications are sincere, which of them are useful, which strive to be honest, and the model I would like, the model I reckon would work, would be a kind of whitelisting of those publications so that you'll simply ignore all of the malicious rubbish that's creeping in 
from the margins, essentially manufactured by idiots. And you are privileging publications which have a real investment in themselves and in their relationship with the readers. And I guess in practical terms, that might take the form of rewarding, privileging the place that those publications have in social media. And I think you, you know, there's a lot of, you'd end up with tens of thousands of publications, thankfully, which are you know, respectful, sincere, respectable publications. But I think you'd be able to identify them fairly objectively. Does it, does this publication have a substantial paid circulation? Does it have obsessions? Does it use extreme language? What are the publications linked to it and what does it link to? You can do that sort of due diligence with machine learning and databases. You don't need warehouses full of interns reading each and every piece. So I don't know how you would create the incentives to make this happen, but I think that if we could work harder at identifying the good guys and then rewarding them, that would be a much more efficient use of resources than trying to analyze, identify, and argue with the bad guys. Make a related point there, which is I think that this problem is about to get a whole lot bigger because I was saying earlier that machine learning hasn't solved the issue of summarization, but it has pretty much now solved the issue of translation. I mean, the sort of machine translation that you get when you copy and paste into a consumer-facing web page for free, it's not great. But the machine translation you get when you're a paying user of the big cloud platforms of Amazon or Microsoft or Google is really good. I mean, I score it between, let's say, 95% for German or Spanish. I, in other words, you can read well into a piece before you stumble over anything which alerts you to the fact that it might be a translation. And you know, sometimes you don't even think of that at all. Russian is almost as good. French is almost as good. Chinese is amazingly good. Arabic translates very well. In, you know, even the worst performing translation pairs like Turkish into English or Japanese into English, you know, they still produce perfectly legible and functional translation. So you know, my guess would be that between, you know, between one and two years from now, we are simply going to get that machine translation dropped into Google News, Apple News, anybody's news. And almost overnight, we're going to find ourselves reading in English a universe of stuff that was written in other languages, and we aren't going to know or care. And when you try and think through the effect of that on both the, you know, the editorial and the business models of existing publications, it's going to be a really interesting time. It's going to matter a lot at the high end because the best foreign publications are very, very good. I think that you know, Spiegel in Germany is the best news magazine in the world, bar none. It's as good as Time and Newsweek were in their golden age. It's, it's got a profitable business model. It has large quantities of very professional journalists. It throws them at stories and it produces big reports. It's great. Um, yeah, a medium-sized paper like Gazeta Viborcha 
in Poland. I started reading it and I thought, well, you know, I'll learn some interesting things about Poland. But actually, it's a really great newspaper. You know, it's got its own worldview, its own ideology, its writers, feature section, lifestyle section. I don't mean to be patronizing when I say this, but I would say it's about you know, 50 or 60 percent as good as The Guardian. But then when you consider that outside Poland, it's got about sort of 0.001% of the buzz and recognition of The Guardian, then, you know, when it suddenly starts crossing the machine translation threshold and reaching English readers, it's going to have an enormous upside. So a lot's going to be happening at the top, but also a lot's going to be happening at the bottom, because you know, at the moment, uh, you, you've got sheds full of people in different countries who at least have to hit a basic level of English to make their fake news or you know, their provocative tweets get across to an Anglophone audience. But you know, pretty soon they're not even going to need that. Uh, you know, anybody in any language can produce any sort of rubbish and it will uh, you know, appear mechanically in good English. So, uh, yeah, it's it, uh, that's that's going to you know whatever that's going to multiply both the virtues and the vices uh, of the present landscape. Let's go deeper into how you think about the the future of of reading. I'm curious here how you think about you know books, you know physical versus versus digital books, and and how, how that sort of competes with uh, other you know or intersects with or competes with other formats like the rise of audio or even emoji. I love the idea. I, I love audio and. It already sounds kind of old-fashioned to say podcast, doesn't it? I mean, we're already moving into a more kind of unified audio space. And I can't, you know, I'm sure that if I was a bit smarter than I am, I could hook together all of my podcasts and you know, my car audio and my Amazon Echo, and uh, you know, I'd already have seamless connectivity. Well, you know, I can't hack that, but if I hang around for a year, I'm sure it's going to happen, and I'm going to be listening all the time. When we get really good machine summarization, then I think you've got an absolutely killer crossover there because almost the most efficient imaginable use of your time for consuming information is to have summaries delivered to you as audio while you're doing something else. So, you know, when we eventually get to uh, really good machine summarization, then I fear that. You know, 90% of the existing publishing industry is going to be producing raw material for summarization. Having said that, uh, reading is not going to go away. And what's more, because it has been so debauched by the, you know, the, the fundamental mess ups of online publishing, the, uh, you know, the quantitative imperative and the clickbait advertising syndrome, Somehow we've anchored the price of good reading at zero, which is totally wrong. And my analogy here is with what Starbucks did for coffee, because in this country, at any rate, in England, go back 20 years, you wanted a cup of coffee, you'd go into a cafe, you'd ask for coffee. It was cheap, you know, it was a pence, but you had absolutely no control over what you were getting. It might be great, it might be completely undrinkable, but you had no recourse. You know, you couldn't say... This is not what I want. They'd say, you ask for coffee and it's our coffee. But when Starbucks came in and the like, they provided both a gentrification of the landscape, if you like. So 
drinking coffee became much more important. The psychic returns were much better. It was a much more kind of proactive part of your life. It was much more interesting because there was a lot of gear and a lot of choices attached to it. And it was it was reliably good coffee. It was not 100% artis- artisanal coffee, but it was 80% good coffee. And it turned out that the rewards for that process were not that you could you know, double the price of the old cup of coffee, but you know, you could put the price up by 10 or 20, That uh, you know, whereas you might have paid 30 pence for a cup of coffee in a cafe 20 years ago. And that, you know, you're paying five pounds or six pounds for, you know, a high-end you know, chain coffee uh, simply because the process has been gentrified. And I suspect something analogous has to be done with reading. We have to find a way pointing out to people that, a really well-executed piece of long-form writing is going to give you like two hours of reading pleasure. It's going to teach you something really useful about life, and you're going to emerge from it a better person. And so whatever the apparatus is that's needed to make that transition, then let's find a way of providing it and let's get there because it's crazy that we should be willing to pay $5 for a cup of coffee, but we shouldn't be willing to pay $5 for uh, the piece of writing uh, that we might read while we're drinking it, and which will have an effect on us that lasts all our lives. So I think that reading deserves a much higher status in our lives than it currently has. And I take a lot of comfort here from the book industry, because whereas the newspaper and magazine industry essentially set its house on fire several times over in the past 20 years and it ended up essentially as a vagrant, the, the book publishing industry, for whatever reason, it had a lot more inertia, it had a lot more resistance and resilience. So I remember saying, oh yeah, you know, it's Kindle, Every book is going to be an e-book. Why not? You can have a thousand books on this thing the size of a sandwich. Who's going to be mad enough to want a paper book? But actually, when it bedded down, it turned out that the e-book was a disruption only on the same scale as the paperback book. It wasn't a disruption on the same scale as movable type. And maybe even less than the paperback book as it really beds down. And our basic idea of what a book is, our basic idea of who writes a book, what you get from a book, what the economic model of a book is, those things have remained intact, you know, because they weren't destroyed in a fit of panic, they have proved to be sustainable. So I think the job of getting long form feature reading up to the previous status that it had, it's still going to involve a lot of work. But I think it's it's an achievable objective. It's a reasonable ambition. So you know, I may not live to see it, but I think that reading is going to be hugely important, more more important, more highly valued, I should say, higher status in you know, whatever, 10, 20 years time. How do you think about that as it relates to sort of Neuralink or uh, Kernel or some of these you sort of, what is it even called, neural interface computing systems like how, uh, your human computer interfacing systems. Uh, how, how do you think that might interface? I don't know, and I 
think that it probably doesn't really matter in the sense that the essential features of reading to me are not the sort of printed words on the page or the pixel on the screen. They are the willingness to invest my time and attention in something that is written in language from which I derive entertainment, wisdom, learning, or preferably all of those things. So if you'd asked me like a couple of years ago, I would have said that I thought audiobooks were a kind of cheat and they were a, you know, a soft option for, you know, if you didn't want to really read the book. But as I've you know, kind of cozied up to audiobooks and listened to them more and more, I find that you know, there is and there should be no difference whatsoever in the status attaching to listening to a book and reading a book. I think maybe I enjoy classic books much more in audio form than I do on the page, and I find it easier to take in complex and difficult books in audio form. So I'm totally relaxed that the book is essentially a book, whether it's in script or whether it's in a spoken word. And I reckon that uh, you you can push that frontier over into into Neuralink without too much problem. I mean, if if it's going to be delivered straight into your brain, that's fine. The question really is what's the nature of the experience? Um, And if it's the experience of devoting your time and attention to something which is made in language and which gives you intellectual rewards, then, okay, it's different, but it's also the same. How should we think about retention? Uh, Obviously, as as we read more, do we retain less? Or how should we think about that over time, given sort of the surge of information? I wonder, I mean, I, I, for, for pure accident, I just happened to be somewhere where there weren't a lot of books. And I find myself rereading a very thin volume of the classic Borges short stories, one of which was uh, Funes the Memorious, about a guy who has a bump on the head and finds that uh, he cannot forget anything at all, like not just facts, but you know, things that he sees, the patterns here, the, you know, the clouds in a glass of wine. So uh, the world is, uh, is just completely full of sensations and ideas. I, I kind of, I'm, so I think you know, there must be a sweet spot for retention where you, know, you can hang on to the good stuff and let the interference go. I have a very, very bad memory, at least relative to you know, other people with whom I talk. Um, and I suspect that's actually quite a relief because, you know, given that I'm spending all of the day just hoovering up almost random facts and taking in almost you know, a huge diversity of arguments, it's a, it's a real relief to me that uh, I can... Uh, my brain sort of purges itself overnight, um, and I can get up in the morning and start again. I'm really interested. I, I don't know what the clinical literature says these days about the idea of uh, aedetic or photographic memory, whether it's uh, it's considered to be a real thing. But 
I would love to have a conversation about reading uh, with somebody who's got a photographic memory and uh, you know, find out how, uh, yeah, how they make the cut there and how they cope with the stuff that they retain. I, I reckon you know, Tyler Cowan must be close to that. It's something I, I, I've never thought to ask him about, but I'd love to do that. Yeah, I should too. Uh, my, my friend Michael Nielsen, along with his colleague uh, Andy Matushak, uh, are working on sort of this uh, framework to help people remember things better, I think by incorporating sort of mnemonic devices while people are, are reading, sort of you're checking with them, hey, do you understand what the main points are in, in this piece, et cetera, or trying to just incorporate tool. Have you followed that at all? They did a piece on quantum computing. Um, no, but um, now that you've mentioned it, I shall, I, I shall, I shall go out and read it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm fairly relaxed about the idea that, A, we don't need to hold it all in our head, and B, what's really important is not so much the retention as the discovery. So, uh, there's not much point in retaining a whole lot of stuff if you can't put your finger on it immediately. I'm fantastically impressed by people uh, who can not only retain a huge amount of stuff in their head, but uh, you know, just you know, pull out exactly the quote or exactly the fact at the given moment. I mean, Tyler is one of those people. Christopher Hitchens was another. You know, he, uh, you know, he led in many ways a highly entertaining life and he always had a lot of stuff to do. But uh, you know, when you put him on the spot and talked about something, his recall was fantastic and his knowledge was immense. I don't, I, I don't have any psychological problems with the notion that a, you know, my iPhone can do that for me. But, uh, you know, right now it doesn't do it well enough. Let's close out sort of you know, looking at the future. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to closing out our, our topic, our conversation on the business models. Is, is it going to be that, um, you know, we're going to have 10,000 Ben Thompsons and or is it going to be that people are going to pay, you know, buy, buy the article and sort of micropayments kind of way? You know, as you know, there are a lot of you know, graves filled with micropayments startups because of sort of the <laughs> There are indeed, one of, one, of, one of which was mine, which, which is why I, I, I speak with feeling. But I mean, we got enough into it to, to collect some data, which I, uh, which I found quite striking. Uh, we bought a year's worth of articles from several publications, the FT, The Economist, Foreign Affairs, under contract, and uh, it, we offered them for sale. And essentially, it was a year-long A-B test. And what we found was that uh, there were a lot of people who were very happy to pay ready money for individual pieces. They weren't particularly price-sensitive. They weren't particularly sensitive to the topic. You know, It didn't matter whether it was hot or topical or timely or whatever. Um, what they really did care about was the writer. So you get enormous consistency in the take-up and the willingness of people to buy stuff by a given writer, regardless of its other criteria. So that's what uh, yeah, what underpins my confidence that the ultimate ecosystem ecosystem will be one that's based on writers. Now, I th- but I, in, in any event, I think we have to end up with a system uh, that finds a market-clearing price for good writing. I'm kind of frustrated that it's taken so long to achieve that and that we're still nowhere near it. But I'm optimistic uh, that when that market clearing model is found, then the economics will be very good for the writers. The benefits will be very clear and immediate for the readers. We'll all be much happier, basically except possibly you know, the publishers whose, uh, whose footprints are shrunk and whose publications uh, become obsolete. But uh, you know, such is progress. Well, I mean, on that note, in a world in which, you know, journalism and information is, is much more market-driven, it sort of leads itself to be much more populist-driven than sort of elite-driven or gatekeeper-driven. In that world, are you 
as excited or more excited about, about sort of the future of intellectual life and, and you know, intellectual conversation? I, I think you have to be, you have to make a very, very clear divide between writing, which is essentially being weaponized to trick people into clicking on pre-roll ads for Audis and writing, which conforms to the traditional definition of writing worth reading, i.e. it's worth time and money. And it's the fact that there has not been a very clear divide. There's been a kind of gray area, an overlap of those things, which has been the source of a lot of our current problems, has been the source of the idea that somehow you know, writing ought to be free. Writing that's being weaponized to like as a kind of marketing tool as clickbait should be free. You should be paid to read it. But you know, writing, uh, which is worth reading, should command a price. And you know, we've, we haven't had that clear divide, but I'm optimistic that fundamentally it ought to be there and therefore it will be there. That's a, that's a great note to, to end on. Uh, writing worth reading, that is the, the mission of the browser. And I've been a long time uh, reader, fan and uh, subscriber. And so I'd recommend that all of our listeners subscribe as well. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been an amazing episode. Anything else uh, you want to leave our, our listeners with? Eric, I'm very happy. A ton of interesting ideas from you. Um, a lot for me to think about and really good to talk. So uh, yeah, any other time, I've really enjoyed this. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 